this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by Prescore. What on earth is a Prescore? Pre stands for personal readiness to exit your company. And here we're looking to evaluate how personally ready you are to leave your company. You know, when you go to sell a business to have a successful exit and look back on it without regret, you need two things. Number one, a company that is attractive to an acquirer, to a company that's built to sell. And number two, you personally need to be ready to exit that business. We found that there are four drivers of a happy and lucrative exit, four ways you can personally ready yourself to exit your business. And by completing your pre-score, you are going to see how you're performing against those four major drivers of a happy and lucrative exit. Just go to prescore.com. You know, here we are at a new decade, 2020. And if you scan the headlines, you might want to stay in bed. It's a, it's a tumultuous world out there right now. You know, in the last couple of weeks, we've had a passenger jet be shot down in Iran. I was reading the headlines last night, and there's apparently a new superbug in Asia. They're comparing to SARS and finding it difficult to control. If you've been watching any of the Democratic nomination, it's a, it's a bun fight, and it will look like a schoolyard uh, tussle compared with the bare-knuckle cage match that will be the fight to become or remain the most powerful person on the planet. It proves to be a challenging time. And I wanted to do this podcast to give you three ideas, three strategies that I think will do go a long way to inoculating yourself, protecting yourself from some of the challenges that will come your way in the next 10 years. These are three ideas that well, not guaranteed to inoculate yourself, they will improve your chances of coming out of the next decade unscathed. And I hope you find them thought-provoking. It's a little bit different for me. Usually, as you know, on this show, I interview a guest, an entrepreneur who has sold a company recently and ask them sort of how they did it, what they do differently, if they had to do over. Yet today, I wanted to just talk directly to you. So over the next few minutes, we're going to walk through these three strategies, which I hope you'll find thought-provoking and, again, set you up for success no matter what the next decade has in store. So with that, let's get right into the three ideas. So the first idea to inoculate yourself from the decade ahead is to stop trying to time the market. You know, when I talk to business owners, one of the most common things I hear is, you know, I'm, I'm not going to sell quite yet. What I want to do is, is really, you know, increase this, the value of my company right up to when the economy hits its zenith, right? When the economy is really humming, 
right? When it's really expanding and it's at its height and people are paying the most that they will ever pay for a company like mine, that's really one I wanna sell. And, and here's the thing. I, I mean, if you're that good and you can predict the, uh, the economy better than you know, everyone, every economist on the planet, then, then by all means. But I think all of us, uh, right, are, are really just looking you know, into the future, trying to think about what is ahead. None of us have a crystal ball. Um, but I think the risk of riding it over the top, um, in other words, holding on to your business longer than your sell-by date is actually a much bigger risk than, than timing the market. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. If we look at where we're at right now in the economy, um, and I'm recording this in January 2020, so the Dow Jones is, is flirting with 30,000 points, right? I can remember in the depths of the recession, I think it got down around 7,000 points. So now we're up sort of four times what it was at the depths of the recession in 2008, 2009. Uh, Tesla is trading at over $500 as I record this. I live in Toronto where the price of a detached home has gone up largely unchecked. I think now it's at around $1.2 million for an average detached home in Toronto, rent in Toronto. And again, I don't know where you live, but I dare say that, that rents and home prices have increased a lot. Uh, in Toronto, I think rent for a one-bedroom apartment in the city of Toronto is now up over $2,500. It, it's a very expensive market that you will be selling out of. And the good news is, if, if you're looking to sell your business in the short term, um, you know, you're, you're probably going to get a better price than you would have had you sold it in 2008, 2009. When I say price, a better multiple, if you will, on your profit. Um, and equally, you'll probably get a better price today than if we go into a recession in the decade ahead at some point. But here's the thing. You need to buy into the same market that you're selling out of, right? It's like selling a house. You've still got to live somewhere and most of us go buy another house. Now, if we're downsizing, of course, we can take a little bit of money off the table. But most of us, when we sell our company, you're going to have to do something with those proceeds. And what do we typically do? Well, um, you know, some of us buy a bigger house. Maybe you buy a second home or a vacation home. Perhaps you invest in stocks, maybe you do some commercial real estate, maybe you get fancy and do some factoring. All of these things, these asset classes that you are going to buy into when you sell your company are probably just as inflated as the value of your company is today. And as a result, when the economy goes down, they will go down as well. And so you know, I think it's a bit of a fool's errand to try to time the market of the sale of your company based on what's going on in the external marketplace. Sure, you may get more, but again, you've got to then buy into a market. M many of us think, oh, well, you know, I'll buy uh, counter cyclical stocks or, you know, I'll, I'll buy stuff that, that, you know, goes down when the economy uh, goes up, et cetera, or hedge my sort of bets. And, 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 and for sure, we can do some of those hedging strategies. But the reality is if you have a once in a lifetime liquidity event where you all of a sudden get an influx of cash, you're going to need to diversify your wealth and put it into different asset classes, many of which 
are going up as the value of your company is going up as well and will go down as the value of your company goes down. So what's an entrepreneur to do? If timing the market based on what's going on externally doesn't really make a lot of sense, what can you do instead? Well, I would, I would have you think about two potential strategies. The first is, is really to sell when you're on a winning streak. Regardless of whether, you know, whatever is going on in the market at large, consider what's going on inside your company, right? So is your gross margin improving? Are your customers happy and, and willing to recommend if you're using net promoter scores, your net promoter score going up? Is your gross revenue going up? Is your profitability, you know, healthy and growing? Uh, are you, have you got new products on the horizon? Are you excited about a new location? All these things are, are, are when you're on a winning streak. And, and that's really the ideal time to start to think about selling your company, regardless of what's going on in the market. The second thing I would tell you is that the time to sell is when you can prepare an effective pre-diligence package. What's pre-diligence? So you've heard of due diligence, right? Where uh, a buyer will give you a letter of intent or an LOI and, 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 and say that they've got to do 60 days of diligence. In other words, basically validating what you've told them during the sale process in order to get comfortable that what they're buying is what you've basically told them it is. That's due diligence, right? That happens again between an LOI and the sale of a company or a share purchase agreement. Pre-diligence is, is effectively taking that package of information that you're going to need to provide a, a, a buyer and completing it before you even go to market. Now, for you, you may be sitting there saying, John, that sounds crazy, right? I'll, you know, I would be happy to go through the due diligence nightmare, right? Pulling together my lease and my employee agreements and my customer agreements and my supplier agreements and all that nonsense. I would be happy to do all that if and when I get a letter of intent or an offer that I'm excited about. Until then, I'm just going to run my company. Thank you very much. That's really what most of us think about when we think about diligence, right? It's something, it's kind of an annoying little hurdle we're going to have to overcome once we've got a letter of intent or an offer we're excited about. Here's the problem with that approach. Increasingly, well, let me, there's two, there's two problems. The first is that there's something called deal momentum when you sell your company. And deal momentum um, is, as the name suggests, the sort of energy that a deal takes over when it is moving towards a finish line, right? And, and, and as in the beginning of the, of the deal, there's very, very little momentum, frankly. People are on their own timelines, but as, as buyers get excited about your company and more than one buyer perhaps gets involved in evaluating your company and you have management presentations and you, and you start to provide uh, a compelling narrative to a buyer, there's energy in a deal. And, and, and there's, you know, M&A guys will talk about the idea that time kills deals. It's also called deal fatigue. And essentially what it is, is if a deal gets stalled, then the appetite uh, that the buyer has to consummate the deal starts to diminish. People get shiny ball syndrome, right? They look at the next investment. They start to get excited about another company. And time kills deals. And the biggest deal killer of all is not being able to furnish a buyer with some information, some piece of data that they're looking for. 
you know, I have a one a member of our community, a guy named Zane Torrance. Hey, Zane, runs a Founders Investment Bank based in uh, in um, in the Southeast Burling, Burlingham, um, among other offices. And you know, I was having a conversation with him just after Christmas, and he was saying, you know, the scrutiny that buyers are placing on deals these days has gone through the roof. Even though there's a high appetite to buy companies, the, 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 the diligence they're doing, he has never seen in his career. And he's a 25-year investment banker or so. Uh, and so I would just ask you to think about pre-diligence. That is pulling together all that data well before you want to go to market. Because if you've got the binders created, the, all the, you know, the data that you're going to need, it does a couple of things. Number one, it, it protects your deal momentum, right? So that when you get into the sale process of your company, when you get an offer that you're excited about, you've got that binder. It's not really a physical binder. It's probably you know, a data room up in the, in the cloud, but it's effectively, think of it as a virtual binder of all the information that a buyer is going to ask you for in advance so that when you actually get into the sale process, you're protecting your deal momentum. The second thing it does, and I learned this during an episode of Built to Sell Radio with the guys from Barefoot Winery. You've probably seen Barefoot Wine. If you've ever gone to a Trader Joe's, um, you've probably seen the Barefoot, I think it's a, a purple or maroon logo. Well, they sell, sold E&J Gallo. And when I talked to the founders and I said, sort of what was your you know, best practices? What, uh, what did you do to get yourself ready to sell, et cetera? They were very emphatic about their pre-diligence package. And I asked them, why was it so important? And they said, you know, the reason the pre-diligence package was so important is when we went to E&J Gallo, which is the largest, one of the largest winemakers in the United States, um, we wanted them to know we were ready to go to their competitors, right? We wanted to give them first dibs at buying Barefoot, but we wanted to send a message to E&J Gallo that if they didn't buy it, there we're gonna, it, we were going to go to their direct competitor. And there's nothing that makes that, that strikes the fear of God in a buyer, if you will, better than when an attractive company comes to them with a rock-solid pre-diligence package. Because number one, it gives them confidence in your company, but number two, it sends the message, man, if we don't buy them, these guys are ready for prime time. These guys are ready to go to market. And so if you want to listen to that episode, by the way, um, just Google built, I can't remember the, the, the episode number, but just Google built to sell radio, uh, barefoot wine or barefoot winery. And you should get to, uh, that episode and, and just hear about how they put together the pre-diligence package. So listen, to summarize, um, you know, I think one of the ways you can inoculate yourself against the ups and downs of the market ahead, and of course, there will be tremendous peaks and valleys in the next decade, there always are. One of the ways you can inoculate yourself is just stop trying to time the market. Uh, none of us can have this crystal ball. None of us will know what is to come. The best time to sell your company uh, is when you're on a winning streak, regardless of what's going on in the economy, number one. And number two, when you've got your pre-diligence package pulled together. And if you've got those two things in line, I think you're going to get a fair and full price for your company. And whatever the market is paying for a company like yours today, knowing that you can take those proceeds and invest back into whatever the market is doing. If it's in a trough, 
and the Dow Jones is back to 7,000, well, guess what? You get to buy some stocks on a deep, deep discount. Equally, if you sell 30,000 Dow Jones, you're probably gonna buy into a similarly frothy market. So inoculate yourself by not timing the market. Instead, get your pre-diligence package together and make sure you're on a winning streak when you're ready to go to market. That's idea number one. Okay, let's look at strategy number two to inoculate yourself against the decade ahead. Strategy number two is to pick your lane. What do I mean by pick your lane? To find something that you do better than anybody else and have the discipline and the determination, the stick to itiveness to focus exclusively on that one thing. And in 2020, that is harder than ever before because we're in an expanding economy and most you know, countries around the world, the interest rates are very low, the economy is booming, unemployment is low, et cetera. And in that environment, the temptation is never greater to start cross-selling other things, to start getting into other business lines, to start doing things that you're really not, um, your company was never really set out to do. And, and why is that? Well, you can borrow money easily to go fund those ideas. Um, customers have more money than they've ever had before. And as a result, they are more likely to say, you know, take a flyer on a new idea, on a new product line, a new service that you're offering. And so it's never been easier to launch a new idea, expand, cross-sell, you know, diversify what you do. And as easy as it is in 2020 to do that, um, it's almost always a mistake when it comes to the value of your company. Here's why. You know, when a buyer goes to buy your business, they're making a build versus buy decision, right? So if a big strategic is coming into the market and saying, oh, should we buy your company? One of the first decisions they're gonna make is, have you built something that is so unique, so difficult to replicate, that it would cost us more in terms of time or money to build or compete with this company um, when compared to the cost of simply acquiring your business. And the only way they're going to come to the determination that what you've created is really difficult to compete with is if you have something that makes you truly unique. Most of us build, you know, start a company and we've got an idea, right? And we begin our lives with sort of one product or one service. And over time, we get tempted. Customers ask us to try a different solution or offer a different product. We get shiny ball syndrome, to use that expression again. And we start to look beyond our core idea. And as long as we you know, are limited in terms of our capital, limited in terms of our marketing, it's very difficult to invest enough in all of those ideas to really create something truly unique. And if you're just Neapolitan ice cream, if you're just a, a hodgepodge of different products or services, an acquirer is going to come in and look at this, look at your company in much the same way they would if, and much the same way we all do when we're asked to buy 200 channels of cable television when all we want is, you know, ESPN, for example. 
we kind of balk at that idea. We say, I don't want to pay $200 just to watch ESPN. Why don't I just subscribe to ESPN.com and I'll just be good with that. Same is true of an acquirer. When they look at your company, if they see one little jewel, one little product that they really like or a service that they think would be really difficult to compete with or that they love to offer their customers, but it's kind of bedded in with a bunch of other stuff that's going to be hard to untangle, a bunch of other product lines or service lines that really aren't differentiated, that would be easy for them to replicate. You're going to want to be paid for all of your revenue, all of your EBITDA, all of your profits. Um, they're only going to want to be paying for the revenue of that one product or service. And so that's why you know diversifying into other products and service lines, in my view, is almost always a mistake. It may fill your ego, it may make us feel good to grow our top line revenue, but at the same time, it can actually diminish our attractiveness to an acquirer. You know, if you want to look at an episode of Built to Sell Radio that I think does a probably a better job than any to really illustrate this point, Google Ryan Dice's episode. So uh Google Built to Sell Radio, uh, Ryan Dice. We'll put it in the show notes at Ryan, R-Y-A-N. Dice is, I think it's D-E-I-S-S. -S. I hope I'm getting that right. Um, Dice is the founder of Digital Marketer. Uh, Damon John said he kind of owns the internet. Damon John's the guy from Shark Tank. He's a, Ryan is a, a speaker at uh, Tony Robbins Business Mastery. He's done some stuff with um, uh, um, um, Ramsey, I can't remember the guy's name, doesn't matter. <laughs> He's a prolific sort of entrepreneur, an amazing guy, friend as well. Um, Ryan's episode is interesting because at Digital Marketer, they created the Traffic Conversion Summit. At the same time, they had this growing uh, e-commerce, e-learning business, um, Digital Marketer. And really, as the businesses grew, you know, they were starting to kind of verge away from each other. You know, the Traffic and Conversion Summit, for, they had Richard Branson speak one time. I mean, it, it was becoming a huge event, seven, 8,000 attendees, massive, massive event. And then they had this digital marketer uh, e-learning platform, which in its own right was really growing and becoming an, you know, a really powerful uh, product in and of itself. But when Ryan went to raise money, as he describes in the episode, he was half pregnant, you know, uh, venture capitalists, private equity groups, investors looked at the business and some of them looked at it as a conference business, right? Which was half of his company and said, okay, I know how to value a conference business, right? That makes sense to me. But what am I going to do with this e-learning platform, digital market? I have no, like, I have no concept of what that, that's worth. Equally, some looked at the digital marketer business and said, oh, I like that. I want one of those, but I don't want some conference. Who knows about, you know, ordering coffee for 10,000 people and what do I do with you know facilities? I mean, like I, I know nothing about running conferences. And as a result, he was really kind of unsatisfied, dissatisfied with the offers that he received for the valuation for his company. Because again, it was, it was, um, it was difficult for people to place a value on his business. So ultimately he sold the traffic and conversion summit and a successful sale. Again, he, um, he talks about it in the episode. So so go to open up a web browser, Google uh, Ryan Dice built to sell radio, and you'll get that episode. But it's a good reminder that acquirers like to buy something that they could not easily replicate. And they don't want to buy a hodgepodge business. They don't want to buy a business that's a bunch of things that they could easily uh, replicate, where the jewel in the crown is kind of 
bedded in or intermixed with a bunch of other ancillary businesses that they could easily compete with. So strategy number two to inoculate yourself from the road ahead is really to focus and pick your lane. Pick the one thing that you you do better than anybody else and start to build a marketing platform and, and, a, and a really a point of differentiation around that. Another episode you may want to listen to, um, I've got a note here in front of me, it was episode 214. Um, it's with a guy who was in the scrap metal business. And if you know anything about scrap metal, when I say scrap metal, if you're anything like me, you immediately go to like the, the guy like the uh, the brother-in-law figure in Rocky, the guy kind of chomping on an unlit old cigar with like a fedora that's half cocked, greasy hair, driving like a pickup truck with uh, you know a bunch of you know scrap metal coming out of the back. Well, that's my image of a scrap metal dealer. And um, Jean Eric, who who entered this market, found himself in 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 a very highly competitive market, buying scrap metal, and in a competitive market. Um, the price of scrap metal was, and he made the case that if he went to a farmer and offered to clean up his farm, not only would the farmer like the fact that he was going to clean up scenery, sure enough, he started a farm cleanup service and he got out of the, the, the highly competitive scrap metal business and, 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 and kind of chose a lane and said, I'm in the farm cleanup business branded himself that way, became the market leader in farm cleanup services. He got to a point where he was buying scrap metal. I'm going to go by memory. Again, listen to the episode if, if you're interested. Um, by memory, I think he got down to buying scrap metal for $3 a ton and was turning around and selling it to a smelter at its peak for something like $100 a ton. So a tremendously successful, profitable company, but it never would have happened or be possible had he not picked his lane. He didn't just become a generic scrap metal dealer of which there were hundreds in his kind of local trading area. He instead decided to become the farm cleanup guy. And it's just a great example of what I think is, is so important for you, in particular in 2020, when the temptation is never greater to expand or diversify because money's cheap, uh, customers are liberal with their cash. People are willing to take a flyer on a new idea. All those ideas and product lines come at an expense and a cost. And the cost is to your point of differentiation. Um, and so I really think that picking your lane is never more important than it is in the next decade. If you're interested, um, again, Jean Eric's episode is episode 214. I don't know Ryan Dice's episode, but again, but just Google Built to Sell Radio, Ryan Dyson, you should find it. Um, Blue Ocean Strategy is a book worth reading. Um, and of course, if you have your Value Builder score, we give you your score on the eight key drivers of, of, um, of business value. And the one you're looking for is monopoly control. That is the attribute we use to measure how well differentiated you are in your product or service line. So that's idea number two, to inoculate yourself from the road ahead. Idea number three, our third and final idea, is to create a vision board for where you want to be in the years ahead. A vision board, if you've never done one, is a, usually a cork board, and it is cut out pictures of your aspiration, where you see yourself in the future. Because here's the thing, 
what I've noticed in in spending a lot of time with business owners and the advisors that that uh, advise owners is for many of us, we are permanently stuck in a five year cycle. In fact, Josh Patrick is an advisor in this space and talks about this idea of PERMA five. And PERMA five is the idea that if you talk to an owner and you say, hey, you know, you've got this successful company, you ever thought about selling it? The most likely response they will give you, and you may have even given this to somebody yourself, is yeah, 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 for sure I'm thinking of selling. Like, yeah, probably in the next, like, yeah, probably four or five years. Come back four or five years later to the same entrepreneur and you say, hey, you know, you mentioned last time we spoke, you were kind of thinking in the next four or five years, you know, it's five years on, like, are you thinking of selling now? And and they'll say, well, you know, maybe, you know, we've got a couple of new products that we're thinking of launching and we really want to kind of amp up our profitability in this area. So we're probably, you know, three, four, five, you know, you know probably five more years to go. <laughs> and you come back another year and sure enough, five years later. So my point is that in many cases, we are always five years away from selling. Now, that could be a perfectly happy place for you to be in. And, and, and by no means do I want to suggest for a second that, um, that holding on to your business, building a successful company, building a valuable company is, is not a good mission and is not, um, I don't want to diminish that in any way. But I would challenge you to, uh, to ask yourself if you're confusing being content with being happy. What do I mean by that? You know, I think if you look back to the days and if you even take a moment now and scribble down on a piece of paper, the, the times in your life when you've been happiest, right? My guess is that a lot of those are the times when you were doing something new, right? You were trying a new sport. You were mastering a new activity. You were with new people. You might have been in a new city or a new country. You might have been doing something fresh and new and different. And for, I think, a lot of us as entrepreneurs, that's what gives us our, our sense of satisfaction, our sense of purpose, that we're, that we're building something, we're moving towards something, and, we're, and it's, it's something new. And as your business grows, it, it may well become very successful. And you may become content with that. And in fact, many of us become inert. In other words, inertia has taken over. And we're running our companies um, out of inertia because that's what we've done. We wake up every morning, we go to the office, we go to the plant, we go to the, the store, and that's just what we've done. And I just ask you to pull yourself up. It's a new decade, a great opportunity to ask yourself, are you happy or simply content? Because if you're simply content, you may find that a new thing on the horizon will actually make you happier. And for those of you who are feeling that sense of contentment, but not necessarily happiness, um, selling your business and going doing something else may actually be just what the doctor ordered. And I wanted to share a personal story with you, one that I, I don't actually talk about a lot, but I thought it, it might be worth just kind of sharing this story with you um, for what it's worth. So. I had a few businesses in uh, in my 20s and early 30s. And when I was 35, my wife and I had our first child. And I grew up 
in Toronto where it's cold four months of the year. It's cold and rainy two months of the year and we have a very short summer. And I've always felt like I wanted to leave the city of Toronto and go live somewhere else. And so when we had our first child, um, my wife and I decided to move to California. And we did it for a three month window to begin with, with the view that we might buy a house. And so we got down there, we chose Santa Cruz, California, which is kind of a hippie surf town um, across Highway 17 from San Jose. So it's a, it's a beautiful place. If you, ha if you haven't been, it's certainly put it on your list. It's just south of San Francisco and Half Moon Bay. So we get there and life's great, right? We've got a newborn. Uh, I'm running my company remotely. So at the time, um, you know, the internet was still a bit patchy in places, but you could kind of jury rig it so that I could continue to run this company remotely. And I did that for a period of time. And we were starting to look at houses, looking at, you know, potentially um, kind of laying down roots there. But the longer I kind of spent away from my company, frankly, um, the worse it started to perform. I, I brought in a general manager for the business, but it just wasn't sort of um, gelling, if you will. We were kind of at odds with one another, the general manager and I. I didn't think they were focusing on the same things that I thought they should be focusing on. Here I was three hours time difference away from the office, and it was just it was just becoming untenable. And after three months, we decided to move home. And it was one of those really bittersweet kind of, actually, no, I wasn't bittersweet. It was just bitter. <laughs> it was one of those moments in life where I was frustrated. I was frustrated that I hadn't built a company that could thrive without me or that could, that could sort of succeed without me doing the work. And I committed at that time that I wanted to do it again. I wanted to move. We wanted to move our family, um, but do it in a more permanent way. And I, I decided that the only way that I was really going to be able to, to move and, and physically um, you know, start a new chapter was to sell. And, and, and that's really what started my journey to building to sell. I... Um, I, uh, I spent the next kind of three years really putting things in place that would enable us to sell the company that, that uh, I had at the time. And, um, and we did that. And in 2008, uh, the company that I was running at the time was acquired by a big publicly traded company. So successful exit, very, you know, very satisfying. And my wife and I and, and our family, our growing family, moved to Europe. We, we decided that we wanted to have a real change in life. And as I said, I, I was kind of done with, with Toronto. And so we decided that Europe was exotic enough that it would really give us a sense of doing something different. But it, it also wasn't so exotic that we thought we might be putting our kids in danger or you know anything like that. So we moved to Europe and and being from Canada, we, we speak, we're, we're a bilingual country. And so we thought, well, France would be practical. So our kids would learn French. It's, would be more practical than moving to like Germany or, or Norway or something like that, where, you, you know, you wouldn't learn the language. So we figured France. And then I Googled the sunniest place in France. Um, and it happens to be a little village called Aix-en-Provence, which is down uh, towards the bottom of the country, kind of near the Spanish border, uh, uh, near the Mediterranean, beautiful, beautiful old town. And so we moved. Uh, we picked up and lived there for three years. Um, we put our kids in school. Um, we uh, we just drank from the you know 
from whatever that expression is, I can't remember. We just you know did everything you could possibly do. We traveled around. We we met local friends. We met expats. We uh, we ate the food. We drank the wine. We did all of it. And to this day, I uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can see the smile on my face because I have such fond memories of that of that time of our lives. And it would not have been possible, I don't think, um, had had I not sold my company. Sure. These days you can work anywhere and I can hear you saying, yeah, but you could you could have just like ponied up and gotten an Internet connection and, 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 and work successfully um, remotely. The challenge for that, I think, is is that working remotely, um, first of all, is is you know, has a psychological cost. The loneliness of that is, is, is significant. The second thing is you're you're really not selling your company and, and, and getting that sense of of space from your business. I, I can remember I, I had an opportunity to talk to Tim Ferriss and I said, Tim, why did you sell BrainQuicken, which was the company he had um, prior to starting his writing career, like so the four hour work week for our body, et cetera. And Tim described it better than I ever could. And that was, he said something effective, you know, I, even though my company BrainQuicken, it was a supplements company, was kind of only taking a few hours a week, the mental, a strain of owning a company, the mental sort of horsepower it was chewing up in the background was far beyond the couple of hours it was actually taking me to do the work. It was always kind of going on in the back of my mind, even though I was doing other things. Um, he talked about it um, and he used the analogy of a, of a computer when it's running antivirus software. If you've ever uh, kind of been working at a computer and the antivirus software, you know, starts up and all of a sudden the performance of the computer goes way down and it takes all kinds of time to open apps and move things around. He described it as like running antivirus software on your CPU, essentially your brain. And I'll never forget that quote because I think it, it really uh, is, is, a, is a great description of what, um, what I felt like when running my company, even remotely in Santa Cruz, and that was that even though I was separate, it was always there. Yet when we moved and really separated um, financially, uh, spiritually, emotionally, everything, uh, it was a much more freeing experience. So I tell you that story because I think as an entrepreneur, you know, there are many downsides to being a founder of a business, right? You've got to manage payroll, you've got employees to deal with, you've got red tape, you've got tax, you've got all the crap that goes into running a business. The one of the things though that you have that, that people who go to work for a company do not have is the ability to do, to live your life in what I call 10-year chunks. What do I mean by that? I mean, you know, if you're a doctor, if you are a Microsoft executive, if you're a, maybe that's a bad example, if you're a General Motors executive, as an example, you know, you've got to stay on the career ladder, right? If you're a lawyer, right? You, you, you article, you become a junior, and you become a junior partner. I mean, you're always on this sort of rat race ladder to the next step. And if you check out and say, you know, this is great, I'm going to just take a couple of years off and, and come back, you know, the half-life of your skills, the connections um, uh, that you have means that you can't just rock up and rejoin the workforce if you are, you know, a middle-level manager, a junior partner, a, an aspiring doctor, et cetera. You're really sidelining yourself. Whereas if you are an entrepreneur, a founder, you have the luxury of living life in 10-year chunks. You can start a company, build it the best way you know how, 
And when it reaches a point where you want that separation, you want to go do something else, um, you can simply harvest the value you've created. It may not be, you know, Elon Musk business, you know, value yet, but it may be enough to give you that first rung on the ladder, that sense of security that you're yearning for, and enough to then go do another company once you've sort of taken a break. So again, I, I share that very personal story with you um, because I, I think it's a, a tremendous luxury, frankly. It's one of the many and major benefits of choosing a career in entrepreneurship that you can kind of pull up after a few years and say, hey, um, let's go live somewhere else. And to do that, selling is is um, is one way to do it. I'm, there's a couple of other episodes you might want to take a look at uh, for sort of kind of just the psychological side of of um, of selling. Uh, recent episode was with I've got a note in front of me here, Tommy Barretts. I may be pronouncing his surname incorrectly, um, but Tommy is episodes. Um, actually, I don't know what episode he is. So just. Google built cell radio Tommy and you'll 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 get his episode. It's called How Remodeling a Swimming Pool Business Led to a Seven Figure Exit. And again, we'll put that in the show notes. But Tommy was running a swimming pool company where they would approach um, apartment buildings, condominium complexes, schools, community centers and offer to manage their swimming pool for them. And managing a swimming pool entails hiring lifeguards, hiring swimming teachers, uh, rebalancing the chemicals, making sure the gate is locked at night, uh, you know, the whole shoot and match, right? And if you're a condo, con you know, uh, board, the last thing you want to do is be managing a swimming pool. That's not what you want to do every day. So you hire a company like Tommy's to do it. Well, Tommy was in an industry conference and he heard a stat from an industry guru, which was that a typical swimming pool maintenance company will have a death, a drowning in one of their swimming pools every seven years. Tommy had been running his company incident-free for 11 years. And it, once he heard that, that stat, it was like the toothpaste was not able to get back in the bottle. Um, he was paranoid that, and, and really kind of emotionally was really unable to, to kind of process the idea that you know a child could potentially drown in a pool that he was managing and and the burden of that the weight of that became so intense that he decided to sell his company and again it was a little like tim ferris this is it's the kind of emotional burden of of uh, of running a company it goes far beyond just the 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 hours that you put into your business so again tommy barrett's interview is definitely worth a listen you can find that again Google built to sell radio, Tommy. Another episode you might want to check out is Sean Oshman's episode. Um, Sean is H S H A U N. Oshman is O S H M A N. We'll put it in the show notes. Oshman, just Google Sean Oshman built to sell radio. Um, Sean had the idea that he wanted to go live on a sailboat and he wanted to be on the boat by the time he was 40. And so he put it, bunch of factors in place to get his business sold so that it was ready to go. One of them was creating a vision board. And he was the one who gave me the idea of doing a vision board, which is again, a, a, a bunch of cutouts of things that you want to go do. And not surprisingly, his vision board was full of pictures of his sailboat um, 
and and that's what he did. By the time he was 40, he sold his company and, and a great story. The other tool that you might want to take a look at is Prescore. We launched this last year, prescore.com. Um, it will give you some ideas about your psychological readiness to exit your business. Prescore stands for personal readiness to exit. So Value Builder Score, which you probably got, and if you haven't, it's valuebuilder.com. Value Builder Score assesses your value, your business's readiness to exit, whereas Prescore assesses your personal readiness as a founder to exit. Prescore.com. You might want to check that out. Hey, listen, this was fun. I hope you found um, these kind of ideas, thought-provoking, um, maybe a good tonic for the decade ahead. Um, as I said in the beginning, it is... Um, you know, these are tumultuous times, right? And I'm not sure if they're any more tumultuous than the last decade or the decade before, but it certainly feels that way to me that there are there are a lot of um, things going on in the world. And for an entrepreneur, it can be kind of heady, heavy stuff. And so I hope these three ideas have got you thinking about ways to protect yourself in this environment. Again, the first, just to summarize, was really try not to focus too much on timing the exit of your business because you're going to have to buy into whatever market you sell out of. So you might as well focus on the other two elements, which are making sure you're on a winning streak as a company and you've got your pre-diligence package put together. You've got the data you need to keep and protect your deal momentum. Number two was pick a lane, right? Um, Jean-Eric, uh, Ryan Dice episodes, really figuring out the one thing that you do better than anybody else and doubling down on that because buyers don't like buying 200 channels of cable when all they want is one. They want to buy a company that does one thing better than anybody else. And then again, number three, create a vision board because you, you may find that um, if you really are honest that, that you've moved from happiness, the newness and the fun of running and starting a company to contentment. And, um, and it, it may be a great time to pull up and say, Maybe there's some other things that I want to go do with my life and other impacts, uh, other businesses I want to start, other charitable things I want to get involved in, um, in which case creating a vision board can be a great way to uh, to get your juices flowing. Um, check out Tommy's article or episode of Build Cell Radio, uh, as well as Sean Oshman. If you haven't got it, Prescore is also a good thing to get. With that, let me do two things. Let me ask you two favors. Um, it's a new year, and uh, I'd love to ask you if you can take a minute and give us a rating on uh, iTunes. Uh, I don't know if you know anything about the Apple algorithm, but it is heavily weighted on reviews and rating. And it's not something that I've done. A lot of podcasts, you know, you get kind of <laughs> browbeaten over the head saying, oh, you know, give us a review, give us a review. It's not something that I've talked about before, but hey, if you like the episode and if you like the show, um, that'll really help a ton. And um, so you can just go to iTunes, give us a rating, let us know on a five-star rating how we're doing. And um, that'll be really great for me personally. It'll make me feel like uh, 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 we're, we're having an impact. Sometimes recording a podcast can be a really surreal experience because you wonder if anybody's listening. Occasionally, I'll go to a speech, or I'll do, you know, I'll be interacting with 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 business owners, and they'll say, "Hey, I, you know, I listen to your show, and it's very gratifying." Other times, it feels like uh, you're talking to yourself. And so, um, let us know that uh, you like the show and that you find it helpful uh, by doing that uh, in iTunes, if you would. The second thing that would be amazing 
is to tell a fellow entrepreneur about Built to Sell Radio. Um, if you're in an EO forum group, tell your forum mates. Um, if you uh, if you connect with owners in some other forum, please share the word. I you know we want to have as big an impact as we can with this show. And um, and if you tell a couple people about us, then uh, that would be amazing. Uh, so those are my two asks for you this decade. If you can find a moment to tell a friend and and give us a rating, I'd really appreciate that. Hey, listen, um, let me end by saying good luck this year and good luck this decade. It's um, it's a real uh, uh, fresh start. It's a neat time to really reflect on uh, what you want the decade to look like for you, some of the things that are important to you. And I hope today's session was uh, was helpful on some level. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.